Welcome to the podcast of Palmetto Baptist Church. Thank you for tuning in. We pray that the following message will help you connect, grow, and serve in your relationship with God and others. Good to see you all this morning. Uh, I hope you don't begrudge me. I will be stepping out from behind this podium so you can see me. My name is Luke Hughes, and I'm the adult discipleship pastor and uh, teaching pastor, one of the teaching pastors, at Midway Church in Carrollton, Georgia, uh, a few minutes, uh, uh, 30 minutes or so north of here. And so I'm honored to be with you this morning. I'm encouraged to be with you this morning. Uh, I got to experience your 9 o'clock service, and now I've experienced a little bit of different experience at 11 o'clock. And it's just, it's amazing how God will meet with us despite uh, the styles or, or, or how we sing, as long as we focus our attention and our affections on Him. It's, it's amazing how faithful God is despite human movement and human interaction to come and be close, closer than close. Be with us and bring his presence to us. And I, and I love celebrating. We, luckily, as the church, we get to celebrate it every week, right? That God is willing and faithful and able to do this for us. But sometimes I think we, we, we miss it. Because we get in a routine, or we get in a rut, or, or we don't appreciate necessarily what is actually happening in the unseen realms not unreal, not fantastical, unseen realms of the realities that are around us. And this morning, like I said, I'm honored to be with you guys here. We're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 19. If you want to go there and put your finger in, if you're a Bible, you know, opener or an iPhone opener and you want to get ahead of the game, 1 Kings chapter 19 is where we're going to be this morning. But I wanted to open up today's communication, today's sermon, if you will, with uh, the truth that, that I've experienced in my life. And, and I, I felt like God was putting on my heart to speak to each and every one of you because I think uh, in the reality of things, we all struggle with this question that I want us to come around this morning. It's a very simple question, but it has great implications for our life. And it has to do with expectations. Now, we all have expectations, right? Some of them are uh, Good and some of them, uh, they, they, like they are, they uh, are, they shape who we are and they produce uh, a, a realistic sense of the future. And sometimes we get our expectations out of whack, and they uh, they they may be a little uh, askew of what actually happens in reality. And because of this, our expectations are violated in a number of different ways. And now, if it happens in a good way, it's not that big a deal, right? You know, you walk into your office and there's a surprise party. You, you don't, you know, question your existence in the world. You say, oh, this is great. Thank you, everybody. I appreciate you coming for my birthday. This is awesome. Other times... Our, our, our expectations are violated 
And, and when they are violated, it, it has a deeper resonance with who we are. And I'll just, I'll give you an example. When I first got married, uh, my wife, Jessica, I have a family. I forgot to tell you that. I have a, a wife of uh, 11 years as of yesterday. And then I have a son. He's six years old. And he is the very embodiment of energy and speed. And so these two individuals make my life more full and more rich. And, you know, I, and I, hopefully I do the same for them. They may have contrary opinions. But the, the, the beauty of having family is you get to do things like move to California. And so when me and my wife first got married, we moved to California. Now, the reason we moved to California was I was going to seminary at what is now called, it had a different name back then, Gateway Seminary of the Southern Baptist Convention. It's located in Orange County. And so uh, I went to school, seminary there, and then I attended and was a part of a leadership team of a church in downtown Los Angeles. And so we were uh, on staff with this church downtown in Los Angeles. I was going to seminary in Orange County, and this is the reason we had ended up in California. Now, we had a little apartment in Pasadena, California. So just outside of the main city, we had in a suburb in Pasadena a, well, it's a stretch to call it a studio apartment. Um, It was about the size of this stage. The stage is probably a little bigger, but, you know, kitchen, uh, sleeping room, uh, what is that called? Bedroom, and a bathroom. The, that, that, it was all encompassed in the stage, and it was great. You know, I mean, we didn't need a lot of space. We were young, and we were poor, and, and we uh, were, were figuring out being married together. We had been married five days earlier when we first got back to our apartment, and so, you know, I did what every wise husband does. I got married to my wife, and then I drove her 3,000 miles away out of Georgia to California, you know, and her, and her uh, dad just loved me from every moment after that. And so we got to California. We were there and we were doing what newlyweds do. We were making this little nook our own and our home. And we had sheets, you know, and we bought furniture and we had plates and and all of the things that newlyweds have. Well, about three weeks into this process, we started to have these little bugs show up in our apartment. And, you know, they were cute and they were hopping around. And, and I thought, you know, they're, they're just, they're these, she said, well, what are these? I said, well, I, I think they're just little Pasadena bugs. You know, they just, they showed up and they're here blessing our house as, as these little Pasadena bugs are, are hopping around. Well, my wife, she's more of a realist than I am. I'm more of the optimist. optimist. And so she Googled, what are these little Pasadena bugs? And it's then that we came to the horrible conclusion that these were not little cute Pasadena bugs. They were fleas. They were fleas. And so in the middle of our house, we had a flea infestation. The the love nest that was our honeymoon suite had become the den of evil and warfare and bloodshed. Now, don't get me wrong. I grew up in South Georgia, so I know a flea. Like, you know, when drought comes around, there's like your dogs will get covered in fleas and you just deal with it. And so I told Jessica, you know, being a reassuring new husband, hey, this will be fine. It won't be that big a deal. Everything will be okay. And so we bombed. We bombed the house and they came back. And then we bombed the house again. And they came back. And then my wife was moving towels around and she found flea larvae 
in the towels. Yes, a dream for a young wife. And we realized that we're life cycling within our space. So we bombed again. We bombed our cars. We bombed the apartment again. I'm pretty sure at that point we were just breathing 80% bug fumes. I was losing my wife, my, my, my mind. My wife was losing her mind. And so we found ourselves in this space. And, and of course, what we realized is that the fleas were coming from these seven stray cats that were living in our yard because the nice man across the street who looked like a dejected Santa Claus was feeding them was feeding them. And let me just give you a little hint at like policy-wise what happens on the West Coast. Nobody was allowed to pick up the stray cats. They just got to live there freely, rent-free. And, and so these cats were not going to go anywhere. And they were infesting our house and it got so bad that our landlord was so embarrassed for this newlywed couple. He said, listen, I'm just going to let you break your lease. If you can get out of here, go. And I just imagine like those scenes from the movies where it's like, run, run as far as you can, get away. As we made our retreat. And I'll just tell you guys this. Six months after we had moved, one day I was sitting there and I found a flea. And I did not tell my wife. I told myself, if we find two, I'll have to tell her. But if we only find this one, this is the last one. That's why I remember it. And that was the last flea, six months later in this debacle. And the reason I bring up that story is because it's about violated expectations, right? If you had come to me on my wedding, the day of my wedding, or you had come to me several days after and you said, hey, how's it going to be in California? Isn't it going to be great? You're doing what God's called you to do. You guys are so obedient and in faith, driving to California. Man, it's awesome. I said, yes, we know exactly where we're going. God has been so faithful in the vision. God's moving us forward. And I would have not said anything about my house being wrecked. We threw gifts away. We dumped so much money into the process of trying to get rid of these fleas. And, and the brokenness of expectations that came violated everything. It violated everything. And see, this is the reason I want us to come around this question this morning. Because it's not a big deal when, when expectations are violated in a good way or even sometimes in a nonchalant and funny and humorous way and it's not a big deal in our life. The real issue is when our expectations get violated to the core of who we are. See, maybe you are like me and there have been times when my expectations and my journey in life I thought was going one way and now all of a sudden it's going in a completely different direction and that brokenness, it shakes you to the core. It shakes you, if we're honest, even to your faith. It shakes us to the point where, where we may even doubt what God has said and done in our life. 
And so this morning, that's the question I want us to answer together. What do we do with broken expectations? What do we do when we, we think we're headed in one direction? Everything seems clear. The, the sky is the limit. We're looking in and we think, man, it's so good to be on this path and journey together. And you are sideswiped, blindsided into a situation you feel like you didn't sign up for. You see no way out of. And in some ways, when you're alone with the alone, you say, God, this isn't fair that you would do this to me. This morning, if you have your copy of God's Word, we're going to open up to 1 Kings chapter 19, and we're going to look at the story of Elijah. What do we do with broken expectations? Well, in this story, we're going to look at the prophet Elijah. And Elijah is a uh, prophet, and he is the voice and the mouthpiece of Yahweh to the people. And it's very interesting as we step into the story, because I think we can relate to Elijah on this point, that as we move into the, the text we're going to look at this morning, the, the context as to what is going on is very important. Because Elijah has actually just experienced a major victory in God. He has, he has gone forth, and at this time, the, the, the kingdom of Israel was split into two nations, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, and Elisha was a prophet and a voice to the kingdom of Israel. And now Israel was ruled by an evil king named Ahab. And Ahab was in charge, but Ahab, on top of being in charge and not being a very Yahweh-following guy, not being a very godly guy, on top of that had added to his pain and suffering. And what he had done is he had married Jezebel. Now, Jezebel was a woman of Tyre. And if you know anything about the Bible, you kind of have a context or you grew up in church, you know that over and over again in the scriptures, Tyre and Sidon are mentioned by the prophets as a target for which God has seen idolatry, paganism, horrific acts against humanity. And time and time again, the prophets are calling for the downfall of Tyre and Sidon. And Ahab has married a princess from... Tyre. And Jezebel has come in. And she's dismantled to what extent there even was Yahweh worship. And, and instead, she is implanted and, and brought in and raised up prophets and priests of Baal. And, and having Baal worship in and amongst the people grow and grow and grow. And so at the time we meet Elijah right before this story, Elijah believes he's the last prophet of the Lord. And so he goes and he makes his final stand. It's the gunfight at the OK Corral. He goes up on Mount Carmel, which is a peak there in the land of Israel, and he puts this challenge out to the people who are there and Ahab that is there, and he says this, listen, I'm going to call all of you to witness. We are going to have a moment of reckoning now. I want us to sacrifice and figure out who is the true God. Are you going to worship Baal or are you going to worship Yahweh? 
And this is how we're going to do it. We will both build sacrifices, but no human hand will consume these sacrifices. The priests of Baal can build up their sacrifice, and I will build the altar and repair the altar of the Lord. But we will not consume the sacrifices. Whichever God answers in fire and consumes the sacrifice, he is the true God. And you may know how the story goes. The, the prophets of Baal build up the altar and they begin to, to do all of these kind of heinous acts. They typically involve bloodletting and screaming out and yelling in different uh, terms and things uh, that, that would hearken Baal unto them to, to, to consume the sacrifice. And they try all day. They're, they're trying, they're shouting and they're yelling till they're hoarse and they're cutting until they're passing out and and. And Elijah looks at them and about halfway through the day, he's feeling a little bit more confident. So he starts, you know, throwing some good game at him. And he says, you know, like, well, you know, maybe Baal is like on the toilet. Maybe you guys should shout louder. Like he will come, you know, like when he's finally done, you know, what he's and maybe just keep it up. And he's giving him a good razzing. But as this happens, it becomes more and more apparent that their efforts are futile. And so Elijah finally gets up and he prepares the altar of the Lord. And he looks at the people and he says, listen, you're not going to be able to say that I did this. So drench it in water. And then drench it again. And then drench it again. And it says the water ran down off of the altar into the troughs and down the mountain. And then Elijah gets up and prays. And God answers in fire. And this is a moment of great victory and celebration. The Ahab is left speechless. The people are left worshiping. And they look around and, and you've got all of these posers, these Baal prophets that's, that said, oh, God is about this and God is this way. And their God was silent and did not answer. And so in this moment, Elijah says, take them and kill them because they have lied to you time and time again. Yahweh is the true God. And so they take the prophets of Baal up on Mount Carmel and they cut their heads off. And it's almost like Elijah can see it. The victory is assured. The revival is coming. God will truly be worshipped now again in the land of Israel. I've done it through the Lord. And this is where we pick up our story this morning. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything that had Elijah had done, how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them. Elijah was afraid and he ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. While he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, he came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush, and he fell asleep. The first point I want you to realize this morning is this. Our expectations reveal who we think is in control. 
Our expectations reveal who we think is in control. In this moment of victory, in this moment of revival, uh, Elijah could see it clearly. And, and what happens is the exact opposite. He gets sideswiped. He gets blindsided. He did not see what happened next coming. Ahab goes and tattles to his wife. Ahab goes home and tells Jezebel everything. And Jezebel says, I'm going to double down. I'm going to tell Elijah that just like he beheaded the prophets of Baal, I will find you and I will behead you. And Elijah just did some simple math in this moment. He said, well, Ahab is a puppet and a weakling and he won't protect me. The people are fickle and mindless and they'll do what Ahab says. So I am as good as dead. And you and I may, may sit in this moment and we may think, oh, well, well didn't he just realize the miracle that, that, that God did? But see, when we have expectations, it, it reveals who is in control. And so the, the narrative that was going through Elijah's mind was altogether different than what happened in the reality of where he found himself. And it looked like the bad guys were more determined and more powerful and more resolute than they had ever been before. Which shows us that even though Elijah allowed God to work through him, even though God answered in fire on the altar, it may have been in Elijah's mind that God answered through fire on the altar because Elijah was willing to stand. See, it's funny when we have to deal with our expectations and who we truly think is in control. It, how quickly we may come to believe that we are more important to a situation than we truly are. That it was our responsibility and our leadership that truly won the day more than the grace and the experience of God. And so Elijah finds himself in this moment and he realizes that he is not in control of his situation. That it seems in large part that Jezebel and, and the spirit of Baal is in control of his situation. So he runs. He runs. He runs from the northern kingdom of Israel all the way to the southern kingdom of Judah and gets to the town of Beersheba. And it says in the scriptures that he left his aid there, which tends to indicate that probably what Elijah was doing in this moment is he wasn't just running, he was leaving the ministry. He was leaving the prophetic words that he was to speak because he got to Beersheba and he said to his aide, hey, listen, I know you're responsible to like take notes for me, be around me, give me food and water. But listen, this is over. I don't need a support staff because the staff job is done. The mission is gone. And he left his aide in Beersheba and ran into the wilderness got under a broom bush, felt the immense powerlessness and lack of control 
that had brought about time and time again the failures of his people looked to heaven and said, I am no better than them. And fell asleep. See, I think you and I, we can relate to this, this situation. Because so much of our life we think we should be in control of. But we look out and we realize that when those moments come that destroy our expectations, that bring us to the point of looking around going, how did I end up in this place? We realize we were never in control in the first place. That no matter how good it looked on Instagram or Facebook, no matter how much we didn't talk about the shadow parts of our life, We weren't in control. Continuing on in the story. Point two. Our expectations reveal what we crave. Verse six. All at once an angel of the Lord touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and he spent the night. So in this moment, we realize our expectations reveal what we crave. And so you find Elijah sitting and sleeping under this broom bush and all of a sudden the angel of the Lord comes to him and he touches him. And he says, listen, Elijah, I understand that the journey is too much for you. So get up, eat, and drink. And it's an inspirational moment, right? Because he eats and he drinks and then it tells us he was empowered in that moment to then go to the mountain of God, Horeb, the mountain of the Lord. He, he takes off and, and by that food, by that drink, he is sustained to get to the mountain. But you know what's interesting about that conversation? I I think for many of us, we hear this story, we think, oh yes, God sustained him. He gave him food and drink. God was faithful so that he could achieve the mission, so that he could get to his destination. There's only one problem. It doesn't take 40 days to get to Horeb from Beersheba. Not by a long shot. Six days, seven days tops, even if you're walking really slow. It takes seven days to get from Beersheba to Mount Horeb. So what was Elijah doing those other 30 days? 
Because see, it, it says right there in the scriptures, right? It says that, that God sustained Elijah by that food and by that drink to get to the mountain of God. And, and see, expectations reveal what we crave, right? Even in this story, it kind of reveals what we crave. You say, perfect, God is faithful. God is always present with us. He'll give us what we need. Why? So we can get to the destination, but I don't want you to miss it. What does it take to get to the destination? Well, just as the people of Israel wandered for 40 years in the wilderness, Elijah wanders for 40 days in the wilderness. See, it takes on a whole new perspective when we realize that God supplied Elijah's need. God filled his mouth with bread, filled his gullet with water. Not so that he could get from point A to point B as quickly as possible, but that he would be sustained through the wandering in the wilderness. Because see, when broken expectations come into our life, what we crave is healing and purpose and meaning. See, Elijah was abandoning the ministry, but when God shows up, I just wonder about the, the questions, the, 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 the struggles, the weaknesses Elijah went as he milled about in the deserts on the way to Horeb. The conversations he had with God in those moments. We don't have them written down, but, but I think based on my journey, based on your journey, there, there's much that can be taken from what has to happen for us to understand and be sustained, to be ready to go to the mountain of the Lord. I was diagnosed with cystic fibrosis at nine months old. It's a genetic disorder, it affects your lungs, it affects the way you, uh, you breathe and, and your susceptibility to certain diseases and stuff like that. I was diagnosed at nine months. Um, my parents were godly, godly people, sacrificial people, cared for me, loved me, took care of me. And then one day, 12, 13, 14 years old, their burden became my burden, which was ultimately my disease. And, you know, this is a moment, I'm sure, for them of broken expectations. You have your firstborn son, you have all the dreams and all the plans that you have for him, and then a doctor comes in and says, hey, this is the issue that we figured out through the testing, and the realistic nature of his disease means he'll probably be around, you'll probably have him for about 10 years. So really just make the most of the next 10 years. When I was 15, 16, 17 years old, I, I, there were some issues and a doctor brought me in and said, hey Luke, you know, you just need to know, like when it comes to cystic fibrosis, there's a good chance you could develop diabetes. And so we probably need to test you for diabetes. And so they, they brought me in the office, you know, I'm 16 year old, you're really able to deal with the world, you know, at 16. And, and I just remember the last thing the nurse said to me before we took that glucose test, she said, hey, listen, you've got nothing to worry about. I don't think that you will have this. And that's the first glucose test I failed. And you know, 16 year old, you're looking around, you're going, man, this really isn't fair. You know, I got a pastor for a dad. I got a godly mom. I, I try to live my life best for you, Lord. I thought my life was going on a direction. We managed this disease pretty good. And now you throw this in my life. 
You know, at 16, 17 years old, when you want to be doing other things, you're learning how to eat like a complex carbohydrate diet. You're learning what it's all about to have units of insulin and all these different things. You're poking and prodding yourself. Other teenagers are complaining about like being scared of needles. You're like, I ain't scared of no needles at this point. Then I got diagnosed with cirrhosis of the liver. And because of a complication about 10 years ago, I almost bled to death from it. I remember I got to have that surreal experience of calling an ambulance and then sitting on my couch. It's like, is this what you do when you're calling an ambulance? Sit on your couch? Maybe I should pack some underwear if I'm going to the hospital. And then through the process, I've told you about marriage and the, the growth through that experience. I've told you, uh, I haven't told you, but my son is adopted. And, and before my son was adopted, we had a failed adoption experience. And listen, the reason I'm telling you these broken moments is not because I'm like, man, I really want them to feel bad for me. Man, what, you know, man, that guy's got a lot of junk going on in his life. I want you to understand this, that when it comes to broken expectations, it reveals what we crave. And if we crave anything other than the faithfulness and the fulfillment of God, we will wander in the wilderness until we are ready to go to the mountain of the Lord. Until we are ready to go to the mountain of the Lord. But don't miss this foundational promise in the wandering. God will sustain. God will sustain. By that food, And that drink, Elijah went to the mountain of the Lord. Broken expectations will reveal what we crave. This leads to the final point. Life is not about our expectations but about our experience of God. Life is not about our expectations, but about our experience of God. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elisha, on the mountain of the Lord? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with a sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said, go and stand out on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, just like on Mount Carmel. But this time, the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. And then a voice said, what are you doing here, Elisha? He replied, 
I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to the death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. Now don't miss this. Then the Lord said to him, go back the way you came. And go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael, king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel-Meholah, to succeed you as a prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed his face. So in this moment of broken expectations, Elijah goes to the mountain and the first thing God asks him when he gets to the mountain is, why are you here, Elijah? And you know what he answers? He's just like me. He tells him all the reasons his expectations are shattered. Don't you get it, God? They, they killed your prophets. They don't listen. They don't obey. And now listen, the, the cherry on top, God, just the creme de la creme, is they're going to kill me too. And God says something to Elisha. He says, get up and go outside the cave because my presence is coming through. And so Elijah gets up and he goes out to the front of the cave and the presence of the Lord passes by. And then the Lord asks Elijah again, Elisha, why are you here? And God bless him. He says the exact same thing again. Why? Because it's hard to let go of our broken expectations. They killed your prophets. They won't obey. And now they're going to kill me too, God. But almost as things were fundamentally different, God says something out of the blue. He says, Elijah... Go back the way you came. But go with purpose to anoint. Anoint Hazael. Anoint Jehu. Anoint Elisha. Do you know what anointing is? Anointing is a physical symbol of a spiritual reality much like baptism. It is a physical symbol of the spiritual reality of God's presence and experience being poured all over a situation. And so 
God comes to Elijah on the mountain, covers him in his presence, and says, Elijah, go back the way you came, but go back as an anointer. What does that mean? Go back and pour my presence, my experience, my personhood all over the situation in which you find yourself. He says, go back and pour my presence over Hazael. And anybody that escapes the sword of Hazael, pour my presence over Jehu. And any person that escapes the sword of Jehu, pour my presence over Elisha, who will come after you. Why? Because my presence, don't miss it, is what matters, Elisha. It's not about the fire. It's not about the antics. It's not about the big to-do. Where my presence is, where you experience me, is what matters. So go anoint. Go anoint. Go pour. And don't, don't miss what God challenges Elijah with in this moment, right? He says what? Go back the way you came. Man, that's hard. You're not going to change any of the circumstances, God. Go back the way you came. You, you won't remove Jezebel. You're, you're telling me I'm in just as much danger now as I step foot back towards the land of Israel as I was when I walked onto this mountain. Aren't you a miraculous God? Aren't you supposed to change my circumstances? Go back the way you came. Why? Because it's not about your expectations. It's about your experience of me. Go anoint. Pour my presence. Pour my experience. Pray. Live in faith. Find yourself selflessly sacrificing like Jesus. And when you do these things, Elisha. Everything is already different. Because it's not about how you think it should go. It's about am I there with you? And you, my prophet and my son, are an anointer. We have any anointers in the building this morning. People that say, I don't care about my expectations. I just care that I experience God throughout the moments of my life. Paul understood this. Paul said it like this in his dying words to Timothy. Timothy, I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time for my departure is close. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And now there is reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. Not only me, but all of those who have loved his appearing. All of those that have kept his word perfectly, right? That's what it said? No. Who is called righteous? All of those that, that have gotten it all right in their life. They, they've, they've actually kept their expectations and they, they've just seen everything work out perfectly. Those are the people. No. What does it say? Paul says, those who have loved the Lord's appearing 
those that have experienced the appearing of the Lord. It's not about our expectations. They are broken as a sacrifice and an anointing, a pouring out, a drink offering of the presence of the Lord. Would you bow your heads and pray with me this morning? Jesus, thank you for loving us. Man, it is so humbling that you would bring your presence close to us. And though we have expectations, God, may we truly find that in experience with you, that you, God, are better than our expectations. That experience with you, though it may be hard and though we may wander, is fulfilled in purpose, in deed, in life, in such a way that it is better than we ever dreamed. And God, this morning, as heads are bowed and eyes are closed, I pray that those that have never met you would experience your presence in a real way for the first time. But those that are in the room that have met you, Father, that they would become anointers. That they would pour your presence, pour your mercies, pour your grace. Not after you change their circumstances, God, as they go back the way they come back into the sickness, back into the struggle, back into the pain, back into the doubt, back into all the reasons that seem to pull us distant from you. May we finally realize that you are the God that is close to us, experiences it with us, carries us through it, and asks us to make a difference, not by just shifting our attitudes or changing our minds, but pouring your presence all over everything we do. Because more than ever, God, we need anointers. Grace upon grace upon grace. That we may live called out. Different lives that look just like Jesus. It's in your name I pray. Amen.